0: This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is
1: game designer and writer Kenneth Height.
0: And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk
1: About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The Dying Earth Revivification Folio. The Whens and the When-Nots of the D&D Battle Map. Neil Armstrong and the Passing of the Space Age. And The Theosophists. It's time once more for Among My Many Hats, specifically Robin's many hats. And so, Robin, among your hats, we find the Dying Earth Revivification Folio. Uh, Say that five times fast and use a precious, precious bandwidth. Um, Robin, tell us about this specific hat.
0: So the Dying Earth Revivification Folio, we can have a taxonomic dispute about as to whether it is a game or supplement. And uh, to wit, I will go back into the mists of time to the very beginnings of Pelgrane Press as a role playing company and my relationship designing stuff for Pelgrane Press. In uh, 2000, I guess it was, uh, Simon Rogers approached me to write uh, and to be the lead designer on the original Dying Earth role playing game. And for those of you who are uh, living in some benighted, uh, literary deprived corner of the world, this, is, of course, is the uh, fantasy role playing game based on the classic fantasy works of jack vance uh his uh picaresque hero kugel the clever who appears in a couple of book collections uh and then uh there are the arch magicians who appear in the book uh, rialto the marvelous and these are all preceded by a book of stories called the dying earth which are sort of moving toward vance's mature recondite witty uh style of beauty and horror and strange justice and uh those of you who have not read Jack Vance and have played uh, D&D uh, think of the magic system as Vancean magic in so far as uh, the magicians are limited in that they learn their spell and then forget it. Uh, and that's, this is how magic is presented in the two Kugel uh, books, Kugel uh, Saga and the one previous to that, Eyes of the Overworld. Now. As it transpires later on, fancy and magic in this universe doesn't work like that. Uh, you, in fact, wind up, uh, if you're an archmagician, uh, negotiating with otherworldly, near-omnipotent beings called Sandistons, uh, who are controlled only by another similar type of omnipotent creature called the Chug, which exists to torment Sandistons. So as an archmagician, you achieve... Uh, power over the Sandiston with a chug and put him in indenture points and then elaborately negotiate with him for the rest of your life as to exactly what magical effects that he will wreak. And the spells basically are just predetermined contracts with your Sandiston. But uh, that is a bit of a... uh, tangent as it were to the uh, process of uh, creating this game so in, in 2000 Apropos uh, for
1: discussion of jack Vance.
0: <laughs> indeed uh if we have an entire uh elaborate uh podcast in which uh, nothing is established but a lot of big words are used we've almost completely succeeded in having a, a dying earth podcast role-playing experience so the idea of dying earth is that uh it is based on uh, reversals and turnabouts and scams and you were the scammer as often as uh, you are the scammed uh, and it's uh, got a lot of uh, verbal interplay in it. Uh, there's a tagline system whereby you uh, gain uh, experience points by using uh, pre-supplied lines of uh, witty, brittle, Vancean dialogue and worming them into the narrative. However, the overall uh, structure of the game is, as one would suspect from a game designed uh, in 2000 and printed in 2001, is uh, sort of in between being a story game and a traditional large format role playing system. So there is a, uh, the spell system is kind of straightforward that was uh, designed by uh, the talented designer John Sneed. Uh, and the uh, more sort of story elements are things that I kind of wrapped around it. There's an elaborate uh, character creation system, as you have in most uh, big format role-playing games. And the response that we got over the years from people was that they, uh, people bought the game, really loved it, and wanted to play it, and their players resisted. Uh, now, there's some more uh, recondite history in, uh, in the middle here, whereby uh, a couple of years ago, uh, Simon decided that the license had run its course, and despite his abiding love for all things Jack Vance, it was time to shut down the line, end the license at the original licensing term, and therefore what he would do was have a going-out-of-business uh, sale for the Dying Earth line. And by slashing the prices on the remaining Dying Earth stock, he sold so many books and raised so much money that he decided that he could then not only go ahead and renew the license after all, (laughs) but acquire an additional license uh, to uh, a core series of Jack Vance's uh, stylistically somewhat similar science fiction books, including The Demon Prince's books. And this will be the subject of a future Among My Many Hats episode uh, when we talk about uh, the, the Gan Reach game. And so in the interim, while Simon thought he was closing down the Dying Earth line, he assigned me the task of keeping the rule system alive by making a generic game version of that. And so uh, a couple of years ago, Gen Con, that came out. That's called Skullduggery. And that did surprisingly well, actually, and continues to do surprisingly well for something that was just... Uh, kind of there as a uh, a placeholder to continue to keep the the core rules alive. But what I did with Skullduggery was make it much faster to get into and tune it for one-shot play, where uh, instead of a character generation system per se, you basically are given a series of random cards on which different elements of your character appear. And through that, you then uh, quickly figure out who your character is by... Uh, compensating for all of the weird glitches in the relationship between all these random elements, and so before you know it you are thinking about your character as a living breathing fictional entity and then before you know that, within minutes you are playing Skullduggery Uh, so it is entirely appropriate that a game based on treachery and trickery would trick you into playing it and that's exactly uh, what Skullduggery does. So when Simon got the license back the next brief was to create what is essentially a new edition of the game, but one that does not obsolete the original uh, core book, uh, which continues to have all sorts of uh, great setting material and stuff on the creatures and advice on the structure of how to put together a story that resembles the structure that Jack Vance uses in in his stories, and also, frankly, of which Simon continues to have many, many copies in stock, uh, due in part to a fortuitous uh, printing error over 12 years ago.
1: (laughs) This really is beautiful. I mean, this is like um, uh, Edgar Allan Poe dying mysteriously um, uh, with last words about someone that no one's ever heard of.
0: Yes, it's perhaps not the clearest marketing plan in the world, but uh, it is uh, basically, I think what happened is Simon instructed his Sandiston to arrange a new edition of Dying Earth, but was slightly unclear in his instructions to the Sandiston uh, and uh, beautiful confusion and amusing confusion has resulted. So at the end of the day, what you have is the book that solves the problem that Dying Earth role-playing GMs have, which is that they can't get their players to play it. So here you uh, create characters in a matter of minutes, you get immediate buy-in into the characters, and before they know it, uh, they are using the taglines and speaking in elaborate Vancean lingo, which moments ago they thought was impossible, and getting into the picaresque uh, treachery and one-upsmanship of the setting. And so, uh, although it's not clear whether it is a second edition, whether it is a game or a supplement, as it were, uh, it is uh, the product that solves that problem, and it contains uh, three... Uh, full adventures that you can use uh, with the characters that you generate uh, at first, or you can generate new characters for each of them. And it also includes a new take on magic, which is, uh, in keeping with the rest of the refit, much simpler and is card-based. So instead of, you know, working out exactly what all of your spells are and what it costs to cast them and so on, it's a much more of a story-based take on magic where you have cards in your hand that represent the spells that you have available to cast if you have spells to cast uh, and then you just sort of play them and you can rejigger them into your your hand and so a lot of the new card magic uh, spells that I invented to go along with the canonical magical spells that appear in the original narrative are uh, or original stories that is are uh, designed to wreak havoc with the new card system so you can like steal spells from other uh, players and it introduces uh, not quite a level of of exceptions based or uh, trading card based dynamic but just a little hint of that in a uh, screw you over sort of way which of course is the core emotional experience that is part of Jack Vance is you know being completely hosed either by another player or by a supporting character and loving it because that's what the whole point of the exercise is.
1: Yeah, so is the uh, intention then to provide future Dying Earth uh, material that uh, ties in more revivificationally or is this basically a hurrah, we've finally seen the last of that meddling peddler with his bag of Jack, Jack Vance licensed property, and now we can go off to the gay and reach secure in our knowledge that nothing bad can ever happen to us again?
0: Uh, the thing that's in the pipeline right now is a new issue of the Excellent Prismatic Spray, another name that will resonate strongly with the DMD players, and this has been the zine of the Dying Earth uh, role-playing game. And this will have a bunch uh, more content for the game and a article by me on how to coordinate your previous Dying Earth game with the new Skulldugree system and sort of bridging the two approaches. And as we've seen, uh, uh, where it comes to Matters Dying Earth, Simon is highly susceptible to terces uh, being dropped into his uh, purse of coin. And so if the Dying Earth Revivification Folio uh, does in fact perform its act of revivification, you can uh, bet that he will find any excuse to do uh, new vance things. And, of course, the Guy in Reach role-playing game is an expression of that as well, and we'll talk about that in more detail as that uh, is closer to coming out. Right now it's in late playtest and is waiting for uh, Jim Webster, uh, our resident uh, Vance expert and comer through of source material to uh, uh, complete his list of tech and ships and stuff so we can have our uh, obligatory... uh, tech section for our new science fiction book. But basically that's a project that I thought going in was going to be Skullduggery-based and wound up being uh, Skullduggery-flavored gumshoe because it turns out that the structure of those books is uh, quite different than the structure of Dying Earth. And even though the characters uh, talk uh, in a similar way and they're even sort of stock- vansian lines that they say in both the fantasy section and in the science fiction section of his oeuvre uh, structurally they turn out to be um, more investigative uh, stories than picaresque stories but we can talk about that in in detail now i was lucky enough to uh, run a game of the dying earth revivification folio uh, for uh, you and uh, simon and ralph and company at dragon meat a couple of years ago and i must say that you guys uh, really latched on to the, uh, there are two ways you can go in that scenario, and, and I was proud of the way you guys
1: went. Well, uh, it was obvi- obvious to the meanest intellect that the fundamental purpose of being placed in a position of transient power over your fellow player or characters is to increase that power and to misuse it as dramatically and odiously as possible rather than to pursue any sort of nonsensical chimera uh, of escaping from uh, interdimensional prison, which was obviously just there as flavor text and could be ignored.
0: Right. So the, the premise of the first adventure, the, the, Ho- the Hotel Grand Perdue, is that the characters who have not really met before all wake up in the morning after a drunken debauch uh, in this uh, great hotel in the grand uh, magical city of Purdue, and they realize that uh, through uh, some incident that they only hazily recall, have somehow allowed the previous staff of servants to escape their sorceress indenture and and uh, therefore they are pressed into service as members of the staff, and the uh, arch-magician who rules the hotel uh, dictates to them that they, over the next uh, Uh, 24 hours or so, according to their job performance, he will then rank them uh, in position ranging from uh, steward to understeward uh, to the dreaded position of mucker. And so what you can do is you can either all work together to get out of the hotel or you can uh, pettily strive for these, uh, small gradations of, uh, lowliness. And, uh, you guys were certainly up to the second task.
1: Well, you know, uh, <laughs> there, there is, there is a certain atmosphere around, uh, dragon meat and around, um, uh, uh Le Mans de Renard that, uh, tends to drive <laughs> one's thoughts in such a way.
0: Um, so, uh, this leaves us with, uh, the fact that the dying earth revivification folio is now out, has a gorgeous, uh, Cover recapitulating the moment, just basically, instance before uh, the cover image on the main Dying Earth uh, role-playing game book, uh, which uh, introduces even more of an existential question as to which is the uh, which is the book and which is a supplement. It may be that now the original game has become a supplement, and the supplement has become a book. Uh, but uh, either way, uh, I hope if you are uh, fans of uh, wit, beauty, horror, uh, inveiglement and uh, reversals in Fortune that you will uh, check it out. Yeah,
1: I think that you have worn that hat dashingly, as is your style. So with that, we move on.
0: And uh, we move on to our next Ask Ken and Robin segment, uh, this is uh, one of our last questions we have available, so if you want to hop on over to the uh, Ken and Robin podcast site at Ken and stump us with more of your exciting questions, we would be uh, much obliged. Uh, but this qu- question comes from Paul Weimer, who asks, battle maps in D&D style games, when not to use them?
1: Well, I think that uh, everybody plays D&D in their own way, and some people believe that anything that gets in the way of it being a terrific miniature skirmish game is to be uh, avoided and ignored, and other people believe that anything that gets in the way of it being a uh, game of exploration both of a magical wilderness and of the magical wilderness within each of us is to be uh, contemned. And so, therefore... Uh, I think that uh, when not to use them is when you don't want to use them. It's not, uh, with one or two exceptions, uh, mandatory. Uh, 4E and 3E both uh, made your life considerably easier if you used them. I conversely managed to run uh, a fairly many years of first edition and various iterations of basic with only the most occasional nod to uh, battle maps, although we did have miniatures scattered about or we would use dice to represent orcs and such and sort of give a general tactical picture. But I think that, uh, since D&D is so many games at once that playing, uh, playing that game, if the reason you're playing it is because you want to use some battle maps, then, you know, go ahead and use battle maps for everything from meeting the old guy in the tavern to, uh, a full on run and gun against a company of magic using demi liches.
0: And the easiest thing to do is to do what you suggest and find, uh, take the temperature of your group and find whether they are uh, lovers or uh, despisers of the battle map. And so if it's really clear-cut that you have a group of people who all really want to uh, use the grid and have the minis out, and they want to take a lot of the uh, powers and feats and or what have you from whatever edition that depend on there being a battle map, right? There's certain uh, things that are intrinsic to certain character classes that depend on exactly what square you're in in order to get flanking over the other guy or to get an extra attack of opportunity. And if you see that players are buying really heavily into that in general, you want to encourage that. And conversely, if you have a group that really aspires to have D&D just sort of run as the engine for what is a storytelling game with occasional outbursts of die rolling in a resolution, you can then uh, hopefully find the iteration of the rule set that works for you and only do that. Now, of course, uh, I don't think anyone is uh, giving away any secrets at this point to say that the new edition of D and D, D and D next seeks to make that an option rather than hardwiring it into the game. And so it will now be easier or when that comes out, it will become easier than ever to make that decision as a binary decision and either have battle maps or not have them. But there are other times, I think, that even in a battle map-heavy game, when you might decide not to use the battle map. For example, if you have uh, one of the sort of mental blocks that it's easy to fall into with uh, uh, the more complex modern iterations of D&D, both 3 and 4, is that you have all of these rules and this apparatus for combat, and as soon as a fight breaks out, you might be tempted to deploy them all. But there can be all sorts of fights that don't actually require that level of detail. For example, if you are just overpowering a bunch of mook guards, uh, that's something that happens all the time in uh, narrative fiction and, in, and certainly in sword and sorcery, where the uh, heroes vastly uh, outgun Uh, a bunch of guardsmen who they just sort of overrun running into a castle or whatever it is. They're really just sort of a minor obstacle, a bit of color that really establishes the power and ability of the characters, not a real challenge. It doesn't make any sense to break out the battle mat for that, and you might want to switch to a a more narrative mode where you're uh, perhaps not even breaking out the combat system at all, uh, but just saying, let's go around the table and have each of you vividly describe a cool thing that you do while Plowing through this group of moocs because we've established for ourselves, or, you know, even if you didn't know ahead of time, it's not interesting for me to keep that a secret from you, that these guys are uh, schmoes, basically. If you're a uh, Conan-level uh, uh, adventurer, you know your schmoes from your uh, serious foes. Um, you know, as part of the schmoes before foes principle,
1: um, I was I was wondering how long that was going to sit there.
0: <laughs> well, you, you know, you, you don't leave something like that on the table.
1: Um, <laughs> not in the Jack Fance episode, exactly. By God. Not,
0: um, and so uh, you know, if if you know that you can overrun these guys, you know, find a cool narrative way to do it rather than spending you know, an hour working out step by step and square by square exactly how you mow down those guys.
1: And Especially if that means you don't get to the uh, elephant god sorcerer who's the main encounter uh, for the adventure.
0: Exactly. And, uh, you know, there are similar uh, things as well. Like if uh, if you are in the middle of an encounter in, or a, a storytelling section of, of the plot, for example, where you are, uh, you know, in a tavern and you're having the typical byplay in the tavern and then the player who easily gets bored when there's too much talking goes on decides to start a gratuitous fight and you are not prepared to uh suddenly on the fly stat up all of the guys in the bar who would have the barroom brawl with them again that's a situation where uh just because you don't want to have to break for half an hour to create a bunch of stats you could then just say this is not a battle map fight this is a narrative fight
1: yeah i I think that in um a lot of games they give you a, a sort of a, a more explicit uh, gradation, for example, savage worlds there's uh you know serious fights where you get the cards out and you get everything you know mapped out and there's the sort of the one off you know this guy's a, a a mook uh you know shove him aside with a quick intimidator or a quick uh you know beat in the head and you and you move on with your life uh obviously you can play gerps or hero at any sort of level of complexity, and both of those have you know super uh battle map type options for people who like that but a lot of that is buy-in at the beginning of the campaign rather than run it uh off and on during the course of the game so i think that that's an important distinction is whether you're saying this is a campaign with a battle map or whether in a campaign that might or might not have a battle map is this a battle map fight is this a combat system fight or is this just a narrative fight in which um you simply uh you know check off a box and say okay You've probably used your great cleave once during this to get through the foes, or if, you've, if that's what the guy describes, then that's how he did it, and uh, you just move on.
0: And there are other situations in which you might want to you might start out uh, planning something as a full encounter and then uh, downgrade it to a gestalt or narrative fight just for pacing reasons. So if you've got the you know the moocs at the bottom of the tower uh, and you knew ahead of time that you weren't going to bother with those. And at the top of the tower, there's the elephant god. Well, maybe in the middle, you've got a bunch of lizard men who you assume are going to be the sort of medium threat that kind of ablates the heroes before they get up to the main threat and reduces their resources. Well, maybe the game is, uh, uh, you know, they, they took way longer haggling with the guys in the tavern than you thought they would, and you really want to get to the big boss fight by the end of the evening, you can then, you know, just because you have statted out all of those uh, lizard men, you can, you know, pull them aside, save them for later, and you can mukify them on the fly, so that uh, that becomes another quick gestalt uh, uh, fight uh, and then that leaves you with the big fight at the, at the end of the evening, or you could do that just because you know that the heroes are really worn down, and uh, you're concerned about having a not fun TPK as opposed to a potentially interesting epic TPK. So again, you can you can downgrade them, and I guess they're in various systems. Uh, either uh, there are systems that exist, or you could uh, kit bash. That allow you to sort of hit a midway point between the narrative fight and the uh, full encounter where uh, you may just roll some saving throws or whatever it is where your uh, victory is assumed but the question then becomes how much does it cost you? to win. And that way, you know, if you roll well and you aren't hurt, you narrate, you know, why it was that you charged through with, uh, you know, only a few picturesque scratches. And if you are hit, you narrate the super impressive way in which you uh, took some colossal punishment and then uh, got up and, and kept on fighting.
1: The other thing that I think is sort of buried in this question is, uh, the notion that you and I both sort of accept that, uh, the job of a role-playing game is to tell a story and, and create a narrative and to provide sort of a satisfying narrative experience. Whereas, of course, a lot of people play role-playing games, especially in the old school renaissance, as sort of an ongoing, you know, challenge night, right? It's, it's like quiz night at the pub or a puzzle, uh, series. It's not quite so much a story. There's a story component to it, certainly, but something like, well, you guys took a lot, uh, you know, more damage from the, um, uh, from the mooks or you, you took a lot, uh, more time getting through the tavern than I thought you would. So I'm going to, you know, take the lizard men out. I mean, those players are, are recoiling in, uh, in horror and grasping their D12s, uh, to keep them from hearing such blasphemy. If there are lizard men in the damn tower, there are by God going to be lizard men in the damn tower. And it's up to you to, you know, abseil up the wall or to fight your way through the lizard men or to use up your, your potion of sleep or whatever it is. And that since part of the game uh, to, to players of this ilk is that sort of constant resource balancing, resource management, which is something that obviously, you know, you and I have embraced in Gumshoe as well, that, you know, anything that sort of, you know, elides that ability of the, um, uh, of the environment to uh, ablate the players is something that's sort of a cheat and something that they would object to if if that happened in their game so uh, obviously it all comes back to knowing your players
0: yeah yeah if your group is showing up for a relentless uh, iron man endurance struggle against the world uh, you should never relent and the mere issues of of pacing are by piffle and uh you should in fact always use the battle map if the battle map is assumed now of course Depending on how old school you are, the battle map itself may be some crazy, uh, newfangled invention, which just goes to show that you know there is uh, no schism you can find without another schism within it. Right.
1: it's time to look at a, another one of the panoply of huts that uh, dot the landscape here at Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. This hut is the history hut. And in this history hut, we look at the Space Age and its recent end with the death of American hero Neil Armstrong.
0: I remember uh, the moon landing as I remember a few other things from when I was five years old. Uh, my uh, And there's an additional quality to why I remember this, which is that Uh, for some reason, uh, in, uh, my family's home, the TV was on the fritz or it wasn't up to the job. And for some reason, uh, my dad had to take me to my grandmother's, uh, apartment. Uh, and there, uh, the two of us sat and watched, uh, waiting for Neil Armstrong to, uh, put his boot on the moon and and leave that, uh, uh, boot print. And I, uh, so that sort of set the stage for that being a special event. And I, I still uh, clearly remember, you know, I was a five-year-old kid. I was falling asleep. It was late at night. I was jangled awake and got to experience uh, this moment of history. And really, it's, for me, part of very few uh, moments of when I knew where I was during uh, crucial events. Of course, I was 11 months non-existent uh, be, at the time of the uh, Kennedy assassination, I remember. Or so
1: you would have a story. Or so I would
0: have you believe. That, that's my cover story, and I'm sticking to it. Um, and uh, I also recall uh, the Nixon resignation, and I guess the, the last thing after that uh, that I sort of vividly recall the, the context and, and the circumstances and relate the, what I was going on in my life to, to a piece of news was uh, the 9-11 attack. But this, uh, unlike most things that you... Uh, remember and take home with you as, as part of your being as a connection to history was a positive and, and heroic event. And even though uh, I am a, a Canadian, and even though the uh, U.S. space effort was in part a uh, furtherance of its uh, geopolitical struggle with the uh, Soviet bloc, it felt like something that really all mankind was doing. And it was an event that... Uh, Really shaped the perception of of what the era was, from the way that uh, science fiction movies looked at the time to you know what the standard meaningless catchphrase was uh, when selling you products. So all of a sudden, everything had a, a space age design. So uh, it's the loss of uh, Neil Armstrong really creates a sense for me, given my spot in in history, of uh, great nostalgia and it's sort of inseparable from my sense of my own uh, childhood but it also seems like a uh, and this is a horrible cliche but i guess nostalgia is about horrible cliches a uh in a way a simpler more beautiful time
1: well i mean obviously if you look at any you know actual history of 1969 it was the farthest thing from simple and not particularly beautiful uh, some the sort of the existential crisis was simpler because there was, as you say the the rivalry of the Soviet Union. There was literally a struggle between two count them, two superpowers, each of which could blow the other one and concomitantly human civilization off the face of the earth if they got up on the wrong side of the bed that day so in one sense, that was a simpler batch of worries to have than our current batch, but in another sense, obviously one thousand nine hundred and sixty eight was you know the great the great year of chaos you know, in the streets, and everyone who, you know, looks at uh, American politics or American society and says, why can't we all get along like we did in the misty past? doesn't have to go that far back in the misty past. I mean, I'm not even talking about, you know, the Civil War. I'm talking about the good old days of rage.
0: Yeah, there really were people who thought that there w- was going to be a revolution in America, which seems uh, nutty now, but uh, it was a common belief on both sides of that internal social struggle. And the, uh the, space race sort of created a uh, a counter to that and it was you know and it was the triumph of the squares it was the the guys with the slide rules in their pockets with the horn rim glasses with the crew cuts the engineers who uh created uh what turned out to be uh, this event with this enormous spiritual resonance to it which is another really interesting paradox about that
1: yeah the and the the, obviously, the contrast between mission control in 1969 with the endless row of, of white guys in, in white arrow shirts with crew cuts, uh, and, uh, horn rim glasses staring at, uh, flickering monitors. And you compare that to the recent, um, uh, dropping of a robot on Mars with the, 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 the kid on Twitter with his mohawk and his, um, uh, and his Apple, uh, iPads and such. And, and that sort of, you know, bigger, more uh, 21st century in a real way. I mean, more like the the bridge deck of Star Trek than uh, the actual, you know, mission control at anything we would have thought of as the space race.
0: Yeah, when I saw that, that sea of blue polo shirts, uh, a couple of thoughts uh, went through my mind, one of which is that they've obviously put them all in the matching blue polo shirts because otherwise they'd all be wearing venture brothers uh shirts and hawaiian shirts they would be dressed somewhat like, like us and it's not yeah. inconceivable that someone at nasa is listening to this podcast even as we speak because these are our glorious people who are uh doing this thing the, the other thing was that they afterwards would all be able to go out and, and demo a, uh, a a card game at gen con without changing their shirts
1: right yeah the <laughs> Although again, I mean, if you look back at the original pictures of of Gen Con, you know that looked like sort of guys getting off of their job at uh, NASA or JPL. It was all it was guys with guys, protectors yeah. and, and crew cuts and a couple of weird hippie guys. Yeah, the
0: original shots of people at uh, at uh, the first few GenCons that was the tribe at that time, and uh, it's uh, fashion sense and uh, outward non-conformity has, uh, has changed over the years, but there's uh, absolutely a, a continuity between those two things. One thing that I thought was uh, observation about Neil Armstrong that I thought was really interesting was uh, Susan Orlean on Twitter uh, was talking about how uh, she respected Neil Armstrong not only for uh, his accomplishment of being the first man on the moon, which of course was an accomplishment where he was point man for a whole bunch of people's uh, collective accomplishment, but that he uh, stayed away from the celebrity limelight, and that by not exploiting uh, the uh, enormous fame and almost sort of uh, hero worship, well, not almost hero worship, but definite hero worship that coalesced around him, that he uh, became sort of a a positive exemplar in a, a world where you could easily imagine someone going the other way and sort of uh, blotting that achievement by trying to make hay of
1: it. And, you know, it's not even necessarily a blotting. I mean, Buzz Aldrin certainly has gone sort of the other way and has pursued uh, celebrity status. He's on TV shows and he does, um, uh, you know, uh, you know appearances at, at, at conventions and stuff like that. But you can't look at Buzz Aldrin and say, well, that jerk... What's he doing on the moon? What a loser. I mean, he's, he, he sort of pursued the fame in, in a, in a, in a more sort of quintessentially modern way. Uh, certainly Neil Armstrong retiring to his farm like George Washington is, is part of what makes Neil Armstrong just, you know, an almost unique exemplar of, of, of any age and certainly of our age. But, you know, it, blotting is, is, is perhaps a strong word for just sort of naturally saying, Yeah, you know what? I walked on the moon. Me and no one younger than your mom has walked on the moon, so a little respect, people.
0: Sued the uh, celebrity avenue with uh, actually an extraordinary amount of class, and when you uh, see him on a uh, show, he's very charming and witty, and uh, he's still a passionate advocate for space exploration in an age where Uh, That is uh, uh, kind of quaint. And, uh, you know, I also have to give him points for that incident a few years back where uh, he decked a guy in the nose who was harassing him. It was one of those nobody-went-to-the-moon conspiracists who was uh, getting in Buzz Aldrin's face for, I think, the umpteenth time. And uh, Buzz Aldrin's uh, rejoinder was to uh, sock him in the jaw jaw and floor him. Uh, And uh, Buzz Aldrin was not charged under the... But it's freaking Buzz Aldrin uh, codicil of the punching people in the face laws.
1: One of the uh, one of the many uh, laws that Nixon uh, passed that he doesn't get enough credit for, I think.
0: Exactly, he was a progressive in many ways, um, and uh, also uh, something about the the space age that I alluded to earlier that we might unpack a little more is its aesthetic influence on the way that uh, science fiction. Uh, looked and felt during that era, and that the uh, wave of sort of uh, optimism and humanism that was provoked by uh, the effort to get to the moon, or was symbolized by that effort, uh, appears uh, both in a uh, in a positive way. For example, at all through uh, Star Trek, which is you know roughly equivalent to to the ramp up to the space age, you've got that uh, contrasting sense of you know, exploration as a, a noble and ennobling effort and the uh, prevailing uh, optimism of that property, I think, owes its roots to its relationship to the real life space race.
1: Part of it is also that American culture and Western culture in general, I think, although I, I know less about that, in you know, the, the 1960s before uh, 68 was a more optimistic, positive culture. I mean, the reason that Kennedy called it the new frontier was that he was looking at the positive, uh, optimistic views of, you know, American exceptionalism, American expansion. The notion that space was just going to be like the, the Wild West except, you know, no ethical dilemmas about the Indians was kind of perfect. And so everything in that era was, was sort of positive and optimistic. You know, you look at, uh, that Daniel Boone, uh, TV shows and you look at, uh, all of the sort of, you know, uh, Uh, the 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 shiny uh face of 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 country music or the the or the you know happy songs by the beatles things like that uh it was it was just not an era where uh you know scuffing up your spaceship would have sold and certainly you know as long as those guys in their uh pocket protectors were allowed to run things you didn't ever scuff up a spaceship but it's not uh i don't think that um space uh, drove that optimism. It certainly contributed in a big way, but I think it was kind of an outgrowth of that cultural optimism. And now, you know, you if you had a spaceship that is, uh, you know, white and polished, it's done for ironic, whited sepulchral effect. It's not done as a sort of, this is why we, you know, are going into space, people, so we don't have to pick up a bunch of litter.
0: Although even at the time, a lot of the films that I think of as visually, iconically, Uh, redolent of the space race uh, 2001 being among them that's actually below those smooth mechanized beautiful surfaces and the spaceships docking to the blue danube is a very uh dark uh view of mankind and the mechanization of mankind so it's sort of uh both visually uh captures the spirit of that age but also undercuts it at the same time and then uh adds that uh, bit of uh, trippy psychedelic mysticism at the end that confuses uh, even further. and of course it's those amb- ambiguities uh, in addition to just the uh, serene crazy beauty of that film that make it so memorable to these to this day.
1: Yeah, but um, you know in, in, in a lot of ways you look at something like uh, a Space Odyssey and, and a lot of that is, is Kubrick's you know particular visual aesthetic as well as you know he's making a space movie. You know, while the space program is going on, so he wants to make it look like what people are seeing on their television every day. Uh, if you look at, uh, you know, other films of the, of the same era um, or, or the same rough uh, sort of period, they've got the same sort of uh, a gleaming look. And Kubrick's uh, pessimism, certainly, you know, uh, pessimism is, is a grand old tradition in American arts and letters going back to, you know, Cotton Mather, for gosh sakes. So it's not the uh, it's not the nature of the darkness. It's whether or not the darkness is the dominant note or has to be a undernote, an undertone, as in two thousand and one. But you compare that to Alien, where you know somehow they're 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 flying off to, to space in a spaceship that literally looks like no one has bothered to wipe it down in you know the entire you know time since its construction.
0: It's it's very funny to watch uh, Alien today in that its uh, technology in a way looks more dated. Than the technology in uh, earlier films like 2001, so they're they're still running DOS, Uh, and and yet another curious thing you know that we have to uh, figure out with uh, Prometheus is how they get from the 3D uh, touchscreen holograms of Prometheus to I guess there's some sort of horrible disaster will occur in the next couple of films that will push. The technology of the future, uh, back to MS DOS uh, nineteen eighty
1: one. Well, I think what happens is the um, uh, the various mega corporations sort of get together and agree that they were all making a lot more money uh, when they were selling um, uh, the 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 MS DOS and the and the big mainframe model uh, in the in the horrible um, uh, meat hook future that is the Alienverse.
0: That indeed is is probably the the worst horror imaginable.
1: The uh, the guys who did uh, Star Trek Enterprise among the many many uh, bets they missed. On that show, missed a real opportunity to sort of present a trans, uh, a notion of something that would look both futuristic to us and lead logically into Captain Kirk's Enterprise. Uh, that they, they sort of the notion of of doing their Enterprise like the inside of a submarine, while it solved a couple of problems, it I, I think it really sort of missed the aesthetic boat, and it really makes between that and the and the sort of um, uh, everything is earth tones or gray. Uh, look of the of the future uh, uh, series in the in the franchise, it makes uh, the Roddenberry Star Trek really stand out. And again, it's because Roddenberry Star Trek is the one that is a genuine uh, creation of that era. That that sort of space race, Kennedy, everything's going to be fine as long as you've got enough Peace Corps and green berets type uh, way of looking at the world.
0: Yeah, it would have been really daring to see a production design that basically said, "Well, let's do." i don't know what a, a 1950s version of space and you know make it look good and have cgi and everything so that it's the production values look good but that you know a production design that felt like an earlier period than uh the original series which of course they uh did the obvious thing and did a production design that looked like the time that the show was made but i guess that's uh an accessible thing and not a uh, thing for the deep thinkers about such things yeah Um, and there's another interesting paradox actually between the uh, scrubbed look of the uh, space age era science fiction and the uh, the sort of scuffing things up which was that uh, it was uh, George Lucas in Star Wars who uh, reintroduced the vogue of you know these, these are real pieces of technology which are not necessarily being well cared for just like they're you know, cars and trucks on the road, you're going to see dents in them and they're not all going to be washed and everything. And so that he created this or, uh, or reintroduced a gritty, grittier uh, visual gloss on uh, science fiction technology imagery while at the same time reverting to an even earlier model of American optimism, which was the uh, kid-friendly optimism of the uh, serials and 30s and 40s adventure movies.
1: And again, Lucas's uh, aesthetic... Being a uh, marine uh, county hippie aesthetic, not a uh, you know Kennedy era aesthetic looks at the the white scrubbed space of uh, the Gemini and the apollo and uh, and NASA in general, and that's the look that he gives the Death Star It's not the look that he gives you know the Millennium Falcon the Millennium Falcon as you say it looks like um, uh, a long haul truck uh, that maybe has been you know skipped a couple of uh, maintenance checks but the Death Star. You could imagine, uh, you know, one or two muffins with the uniforms aside. You can imagine that being the inside of the space station that you and I thought we were all going to get after we saw Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon in 1969. We figure, well, by by 2012, for sure, there's going to be a big, uh, you know, NATO space station or American space station or maybe, if you were a real uh, optimist, uh, a UN space station that would be up there. But if we thought what the inside would look like, we would have painted the Death Star. We wouldn't have painted anything that the rebels were using.
0: And that's absolutely an expression of Lucas's hippie aesthetic because, uh, the script that became Star Wars started out as the script that sort of diverged in two and one half of it became Star Wars and the other half became Apocalypse Now and, uh, Lucas, in making Star Wars, envisioned his heroes as the plucky, heroic Viet Cong against the uh, sinister, corrupt uh, American forces. So it's uh, not an accident that the uh, look of the Death Star is the look of uh, triumphant uh, American optimism.
1: Which I guess is sort of the final uh, piece of of history. Hut is that uh, all of these things are contingent, right? That anything that you look at and you think, well. This is obviously the way that the future is always going to be because this is what I'm seeing sitting in my chair, uh, in Chicago on the podcast right now, or this is what I thought sitting on my folks couch in my house in Oklahoma City, uh, being held vertical while I watched Neil Armstrong walk on the moon. Uh, this is, you know, you you, you you extrapolate in a straight line at the very real risk of realizing that that straight line is being bent by forces that you don't understand or aren't paying attention to, and that it ain't going to go straight even if it wasn't being bent, that uh, history doesn't do that thing. And that's, you know, we all thought that Neil Armstrong's f- setting foot on the moon meant one thing, and maybe the guys in charge of NASA who could look ahead for their 10-year budget thought something else, and certainly President Nixon thought something else. And, you know, maybe Michael Collins, you know, up there in the orbiter, you know, was thinking something else that, you know, one hopes that he was not thinking, well, this is as close as I'm ever going to get to the moon. But, you know, that turned out to be what the case was, right?
0: Yeah, he was probably thinking, is Buzz still mad at me for uh, jockeying him out of first guy in the moon position? And Buzz was thinking, you know, I'm not going to take any good pictures of him down on the moon. (laughs) Uh, Which comes down to the other thing about history, which is that it's always about people. Yeah. installment of uh, this podcast we're going to go to our already acclaimed and popular segment Consulting Occultist in which we plumb Ken's knowledge of all things occult and mystical and get the 101 on various movements and people in uh, the shadowy world of uh, the strange and magical and uh, this time I thought we would uh, start with a group that I've always found fascinating and ask Ken for uh, the introductory nutshell version of who were the Theosophists and where did they come from?
1: The Theosophists were uh, a movement that that was fundamentally started by a former uh, circus trick writer named Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who in a uh, synchronicity to delight the hearts of all people is often known as HPB, to match our beloved HPL here in the podcast. And uh, what she did was she synthesized pretty much uh, the, the ongoing uh, trends of Western occult thought uh, and the more exciting versions of Western occult uh, novels, such as Bulwer lyttons uh, fiction, and uh, what was being uncovered and learned at that time, being the mid-19th century, of the wisdom of the East, uh, Buddhism in its various forms, Hinduism, uh, the various Hindu mysticisms about sort of these um, deafening amounts of, of deep time and long time, that uh, Hindu mysticism believes in, and uh, t- Tibetan Buddhism, a little bit of uh, Japan, a little bit of whatever she could uh, uh, scumble up, uh, you know, Atlantis, uh, all of those great things, and then attempted to provide it with a practical, scientific-sounding uh, grounding by tying it all into Darwin and saying that all of this uh, nature of... Uh, revealed uh, reality, uh, which was revealed to her by magical occult masters that no, uh, she was not inclined to share any details about with you, uh, was that uh, the world was created uh, unimaginable eons ago, and that uh, thanks to a quasi-Darwinian process, various root races uh, slowly degenerated into the uh, state that we have today while simultaneously evolving within their uh, epicycles uh, to be more and more recognizably human so there's sort of a a weird combination of the pre uh, modern notion that everything was great in the past and is falling apart now which is what sh- uh, I suppose she got out of Hinduism with the Kali Yuga being the final stage before the world is destroyed and everything gets remade that stage, of course, being where we're living now, and the sort of Darwinian notion that everything is being evolved uh, to ever and ever better selves, just like society and just like the economy and just like everything else. So. She sort of squares that circle by creating this, uh, creating or discovering from her secret masters this cosmogony of root races, ancient beings. So the, uh, Polarians, uh, give birth to the Hyperboreans who give birth to the Lemurians who are, uh, mostly matter and therefore, you know, sort of a breakpoint. And then they give birth to the, uh, Atlanteans who give birth to the Aryans who are the, um, uh, super root race of humanity. And by now, I think we can all see where this mixture of Darwin and mysticism is pointing.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, so as soon as you get the A word, you start to uh, feel that uh, chill up your spine. Now, uh, where, where is she historically? What period is she uh, developing all these ideas?
1: She uh, is developing them in, say, the eighteen, probably the 1850s and 1860s. She forms the Theos- Theosophical Society in 1875. She publishes the Secret Doctrine, which is her sort of um, uh, Silmarillion in, I guess, 1881, I want to say, something like that. Uh, it's, it's, it's around then. So she's basically in what we generally look at as the, the great age of uh, Victorian, uh, everything in an encyclopedia in a handsome serif font.
0: And so have you actually uh, attempted to read much of her original material?
1: I've read bits and pieces, but it's, it's very, very, like a lot of the 19th century's uh, gospels are. It's written in sort of this quasi-biblical talk that they thought sounded very impressive and then interspersed with sort of her endless lectures on what uh, the ancient masters believed and uh, sort of uh, misapprehended or uh, misappropriated Hinduism and Hindu mysticism. It's not, it's not super riveting uh, material in the original and it's really long. Uh, The great thing is that it is really well indexed in the edition that I have. So if I'm looking for something uh, specifically by her, and this is, of course, in the era before internets, um, I I could uh, pull down my lovely copies of Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine and uh, page through them uh, the indexes and find pretty much uh, Helena Petrovna. Uh, unburdening herself on any kind of crazy topic.
0: So your uh, effort to craziness ratio has uh, is greatly facilitated by this indexing.
1: Yes, absolutely. The um, uh, I got those books from a lovely batch of people. Um, I I want to say the Quest Society. It's it's a theosophical publishing house here in Illinois. They were at Book Expo and they were uh, happy to share the work of Helena Petrovna Blavatsky with. A uh, proper scholars such as myself, so that was a that was a real real mitzvah that they did for me. Oh, and, little uh, did they know! Well, now of course she's on the internet, and anyone can can you know if they have the patience can go through and. Uh, and do searches for all kinds of things
0: so uh, what was she like as a as a person what was her her personality as gurus go
1: well i mean i think as gurus have to be she was sort of imperious and cruel and arbitrary and nasty and made people sort of question their role in things all the time but that's just sort of you know that's guru job it's like blaming a drill sergeant for yelling at people. <laughs> um i i look at her personality and she just seems like she would have been a great deal of fun assuming you hadn't gotten on the wrong side of her i mean she's you know she she looked uh she was she was not an attractive lady by any stretch of the imagination in her pictures but she obviously had some kind of crazy charisma going on people would you know hang on her every word and listen to her blather on endlessly about piranhas and devas and yugas and god knows what and so she must have had a real sort of a a, a charm to her just to, to listen to her talk uh it's not as well known as maybe it should be that Uh, A lot of her disciples, uh, because she believed uh, that uh, Indian magic was the the, the Indian esotericism uh, in India was the oldest and most important kind of esotericism, that that gave a lot of the impetus to Indian nationalism. And uh, Gandhi's Congress Party basically was the political action arm of the Theosophical Society in India in a lot of ways. So... You know, you in addition to providing a little bit of the intellectual juice for Hitler, she provides a great deal of the intellectual juice for Gandhi. So, you know, she's not, you know, all um uh it's not all about rooking people and getting them to pay for your hotel bills, although I'm certain she did that too. I mean she was circus people, so she was she was great. I mean I you know, I'm, I certainly would not have ever uh, wanted to uh, be trapped on a desert island with her, but as someone to uh, to sort of hang out with, I'm sure she was a hoot and a half.
0: And, and in fact, the term Mahatma, Mahatma, which as a child I thought was, you know, the first Mahatma Gandhi, is in fact an honorific that comes from theosophy.
1: Yeah, it, it means great-souled uh, one, basically. It's... Uh, a, uh, it's, it's her sort of technical term for her secret masters. Secret masters go way back in, in secret society biz. If you're any kind of a secret society, you don't say, no, my, my brother the dentist, uh, made this up and that's why it's true. You say, no, it was revealed to us by secret masters who I can't name. And frankly, I'm doing you a favor even telling you there are secret masters. And that goes back at the very least, at the very earliest, it goes back to the Rosicrucians in the 17th century.
0: Now, as far as we know though, Gandhi himself was not particularly influenced by the, uh, mystical side of theosophy. Is that correct?
1: I, I don't know an awful lot about Gandhi's, uh, religious or mystical beliefs. I mean, I, I know that his sort of his ethical constructs and political approach, a lot of that came out of Thoreau and a lot of it came out of just, you know, being an ethical person living in South Africa in 1900, uh, which is going to, you know, make you think one way or the other about, uh, how society ought to be organized because that certainly wasn't. Uh, but, um, I don't know anything actually about whether or not his uh, beliefs were, uh, you know, conventionally Hindu or uh, some sort of uh, secular, uh, you know, humanism. So I don't know at all that he was a theosophist, and certainly if he had been, it would be all over the websites. Uh, but uh, huge numbers of his most important uh, sponsors and followers were theosophists, and it was a big part of uh, laying the groundwork. For his fundraising movement in britain and uh, and elsewhere
0: now of course uh, we 've alluded to this earlier, but the rule is if you influence a bunch of Nazis that stays on your your uh, report card it
1: goes on your permanent record,
0: yeah, so what was the influence of uh, theosophy on uh, the the Nazi movement
1: well, theosophy because of uh, uh, again, I think because of blavatsky 's charisma, but also because you know once you 're the first person to to summarize all of craziness in one book, uh, especially a well-indexed book, <laughs> uh, then you are the guy who everyone else has to sort of say, well, mine is like that, except. So, you know, it's D&D, except with Cthulhu. It's Theosophy, except with more Aryans." is the basic way that uh, the uh, what, they, what they called themselves, the Ariosophists, uh, Lanz von Liebenfeld and a couple of other fellows in Austria came up with this notion that the sort of the, the deep time in the big picture was all well and good, but the important question now, sort of the practical arm of uh, theosophy should be, what do you do about it in the real world? And in the real world, they were German nationalists who were trying to co-opt this uh, mindset in the same, pretty much the same way that Annie Besant and Jiddu Krishnamurti were trying to co-opt theosophy for Indian nationalism. And so they fixated on this notion of the Aryan root race. And the notion of there being sub root races that evolve off at specific catastrophic times in history and since one of them per HPB is the Semitic root race dun 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 You can just tell uh, that uh, Something has to be done if we're going to sort of fix this uh, Evolutionary death spiral into the Kali Yuga that Theosophy has warned us about and the way to jump off that wheel of course is to sort of go back to the wisdom of the Aryan root race and that. Uh, for Lanz von Liebenfels, and his ilk was uh, relatively harmless uh, runic lore and vegetarianism and going out in nature and looking at Germany's wonderful natural beauty instead of filthy old cities which are full of those people we don't need to tell you, but you know we're talking about. And that was basically Ariosophy as a sort of f- philosophical projection. And the trouble is that they were doing all this in Vienna and Linz in 1908 when young Adolf Hitler is uh, eager for crazy stuff uh, to tie his own sense of rejection and incompetence to.
0: So it was a series of steps by which this uh, mystical philosophy was made increasingly uh, racisty until you got the... Uh you know the worst possible form of that
1: yeah i mean let, you you can 't really you know soft pedal uh h p b s racism either i mean it's a great white brotherhood for a reason, and she definitely talks about you know there being you know sub races and root races, and uh she definitely puts herself in the in the in the better class and other folks in the not so better class, but she's also talk- making you know, using uh, theosophy as an explicitly anti racist argument against. Uh, you know, the British, when she says, no, India is actually the truest of all the races. That's what Aryan actually meant uh, back before it got uh, its brand uh, besmirched, was it was the guys who were speaking Sanskrit who invaded India and took it over from the Dravidians, the smaller, darker people who lived in India before them, uh, which is its own uncomfortable uh, racial implication, certainly to us now, but in the day was downright progressive because it was saying that uh, northern Indians were if anything, better than Scotchmen and Irishmen and Englishmen who are out there governing them.
0: And so we would be remiss, this being the Ken and Robin Talk About uh, Stuff podcast, if we did not uh, invoke uh, yet someone else who was in theosophy, and that was H.P. Lovecraft.
1: Right, yes. Lovecraft discovers the theosophy in 1925 or so. It's hard to say for sure. But he definitely gives them a shout-out in The Call of Cthulhu, talking about how the truth of deep time is such that uh, theosophists would blanch from if they did not mask it with their cheery optimism. And for Lovecraft to describe theosophy as cheery optimism is, uh, <laughs> is quite the stretch. But uh, compared to Cthulhu, I suppose it is. And uh, Lovecraft thinks that this is terrific stuff. It's pure quill. His buddy E. Hoffman Price in New Orleans hooks him up with more theosophical... Uh, literature, uh, some of which makes its way into Through the Gates of the Silver Key, which is Lovecraft's sort of most theosophical uh, story. But since he co-wrote it with E. Hoffman Price, uh, a lot of the theosophy probably came from Price. And Price was an occultist par excellence. I don't know if he was actually a theosophist or just sort of a, a happy mystic who took anything that came along as long as it made good copy And Lovecraft is influenced by Theosophy because everyone who's paying attention to the occult or to the, uh, you know, even on the level of occult literature or horror literature is being influenced by Theosophy, not least because they're being influenced by Bulwer-Lytton's proto-theosophical novels and then by what uh, 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 HPB has done to the whole field of uh, imaginative literature after her. And she's influencing not just Lovecraft, but all the people who are writing about Atlantis and Lemuria and Mew and all of these sort of uh, imaginary uh, gods and monsters and, and ancient beings. So it's, so it's something that he's picking up on from that, and then when he actually runs across proper theosophy, he of course turns it into the Cthulhu mythos, into the the legend of, yeah, there were ancient inhuman races. And yes, humans are here now. And no, that's not nearly as awesome as Blavatsky makes it sound. It is starkly terrifying and horrific because it means that we are a uh, cosmic... uh, uh,
0: Right, because the extent to which we descend from these races, that's a bad thing. That's a thing that you don't want to find out and you don't want to meet them. You don't want to be transliterated into their bodies as they swap consciousness with you. These guys are all various degrees of bad news.
1: Yeah, there's a a lot of... um, of, of Lovecraft's later stuff, especially the great race of Yith, that is a really strong commentary on theosophy. The, the great race of Yith, of course, is a bodiless race that sort of tweaks and uh, touches on human history without really having any sort of directing uh, goal for it. Uh, so that's sort of an arch commentary by, by Lovecraft on this uh, more teleological notion that the great race and uh, his uh, local Darwinists had as well.
0: So I guess our final takeaway from the story of uh, Madame Blavatsky and the Theosophists is that uh, it's uh, great to have an overarching mythology that draws together all the different mystical strands of your time, but the real power lies in having a great index.
1: Yeah, uh, again, I don't know how well indexed she was, but it was the Victorian times, and people, uh, you know, they read more for content then.
0: Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software.
1: And Pellgrain Press.
0: Find our website at Ken and Robin talk about stuff.com
1: Leave comments, odd utterances, and much-needed questions for our Ask Ken and Robin segment.
0: If your mother was scared by a podcast website when you were in the womb, you might instead subscribe to
1: the podcast on iTunes. Or follow us on Twitter, where I'm Kenneth Height. And I'm at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, when once again, we will talk about stuff.